I missed you terribly last week as we had to um, postpone our worship service, really, because of the conditions of our campus with the ice and the sleet and the, um, the snow. Um, I warned you on Facebook um, that I had two weeks to work on this sermon. And so, um, I'm an honest man, and so I want you to buckle up, and I want you to listen um, to what I've thought about for two weeks about the mercy of Jesus. And so, if you have your Bibles, please take them and open them to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 21. My title this morning is Lord of Mercy. Lord of Mercy. Now, I want everyone right now, as an opening exercise from children to senior adults, I want everyone right now to think about the most powerful kings, emperors, rulers, dictators, or presidents from history. Who comes to mind? What comes to mind when you think about these figures, these figures from history? Do you think about maybe Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Artaxerxes, Cyrus the Great, Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Caesar Augustus, Attila the Hun, maybe you think of Mao Zedong or Napoleon, Henry VIII, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, very powerful, very powerful, rulers of the world, changers of history, or maybe you didn't think of powerful kings, you might have tried to think of good kings. Maybe you try to think of maybe David or Solomon or Hezekiah, but if I pressed you, would you really want to call them good if it came down to it? Would you really call them good? Would you really even call them powerful? I mean, compared to the others that I mentioned, none of them were powerful compared to people like Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus the Great or Caesar Augustus. Now, I want that little exercise to help us better understand Matthew's purpose in his gospel. When you come to Matthew's gospel, he's trying to argue that Jesus is both good and powerful, but at the same time, altogether different from every other king you've ever read about in history, that Jesus is the almighty sovereign Lord of all sent by the Father, the very Son of God. He's greater than Abraham, greater than David, greater than the temple that sat at the center of all of Jewish cultural life, that Jesus is Lord of all, of heaven and earth, all things. Now that's important to remember as we come to Matthew 12, okay? As we find Jesus at the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 12, moving about from town to town, he's preaching, he's healing, and he comes into conflict with the Pharisees, this religious group, over an issue regarding the Sabbath, okay? That's the fight that's going to happen here in chapter 12. For first century Jews, Sabbath keeping was one of the three main tenets of their religion and culture. Sabbath keeping, meaning taking a day of rest from commerce and work, it stood right next to circumcision and their dietary laws as critically important to their cultural identity. Being circumcised and eating kosher 
could not be separated from Sabbath keeping. And Sabbath keeping could not be separated from being circumcised and the dietary laws. It's what built their culture. And so the Pharisees, out of fear of breaking the Sabbath, they added a litany of other laws and regulations and stipulations that went down to the very amount of steps a person can take on the Sabbath without it being considered work. If you took this many steps, you could still keep the Sabbath. If you took one more, you've broken the Sabbath and have worked. Okay? Now, it is against these man-made regulations that Jesus finds himself at, finds himself at odds with the Pharisees. So Matthew 12 catalogs conflicts particularly about the Sabbath. In verses 1 through 5, let me give you the summary. Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees because they're following him around and it's harvest time and his disciples go through a grain field and they pluck some heads of grain and eat them because they're hungry. Okay? Now, the, the Pharisee says that's unlawful for them to do. That constitutes harvesting. Like grabbing three heads of grain and eating them, that's harvesting? A whole field of grain? And so, um, the problem here is that the disciples were doing what is completely lawful according to the laws that God had given them. In typical fashion, though, Jesus shows them how they're wrong. But what is key is verses 6 through 8. And so, I'm going to read verses 6 through 8 and the following as we get into our text today. So, look what it says here, beginning in verses um, 6 through 8. Jesus says this about the first conflict. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And he asked them, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, remember, is it lawful? It's not lawful for you to pick grains of head and eat them. Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And so, so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, here's the question that we're asked, seeking to answer this morning. Who is this man that claims to be the very Lord of the Sabbath? The man who can say, 
I am Lord over all of your traditions and all of your laws. I am Lord up. I am Lord over the very laws you were given. I am Lord. What is the other question is what is Matthew trying to reveal to us about who Jesus is and what makes him different from every other ruler and king? And I want to give you three things this morning. Here's the first. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is Lord of mercy. Jesus is Lord of mercy. Now our text begins in verses 9 through 16 with another conflict. Another conflict over the Sabbath involving the Pharisees. Now I want you to notice several things here, okay? So track these with me through verses 9 through 16. Notice the story here involving this confrontation. First, notice that Jesus intentionally enters their synagogue. Their synagogue, okay? Hot on the heels of their confrontation in the grain field where they're apparently following Jesus... Jesus turns around and follows them, and he follows them right to their synagogue on the Sabbath into their place of worship. Now, we're not sure of the location. We just know it's around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus goes on purpose to the synagogue on the Sabbath in the midst of a conflict. Second, notice that the man with the withered hand is just a pawn in their scheme, okay? We're just told he's there. All right? We aren't even given his name. He gets up on the Sabbath and goes to worship. He probably didn't know Jesus would be there. All right? He most certainly didn't want his disability to be on public display as what is contentious involving all of the people here. He didn't come to church so the Pharisees could stand him up and show everybody his disability. He's just a pawn. Okay? They simply put this man before Jesus without any regard for him as a person in need of care, love, mercy, or compassion. He doesn't even ask to be healed. He doesn't plead for mercy. He says nothing in this text. Now, most likely, the Pharisees regarded his condition as being due to his own sin. It's his fault he's got a withered hand, though we're not told how he came about it. He might have been born with it. It might have been from a disease. Third, Notice the Pharisees intentionally placed this man before Jesus to test him about the Sabbath. They put him here to test Jesus. Verse 10 tells us that they're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They want to trap Jesus in his words or his actions. So they go to the synagogue, a place of worship, a place of sanctuary, a holy place, and they turn it into a place of danger and entrapment. I could go on a tangent here about people using the church for that kind of thing today. This is a place of worship. It's not a place to trap people. Okay? But the Pharisees, again, raise the issue of what is lawful to do on the Sabbath and what is unlawful to do according to their traditions. Fourth, notice that their question, their question gives away something. Their, tw- their question to Jesus gives away what they know to be true about Jesus. I find this part to be interesting, funny, and telling. They know that Jesus is able to heal this man. Think about what their question assumes to be true. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, Jesus? They don't ask Jesus, are you able to heal on the Sabbath? They assume that Jesus can heal on the Sabbath. 
They know that Jesus has been compassionately healing others and ministering to others around the Sea of Galilee. That truth is incontrovertible. It is undeniable. As undeniable as the sun comes up in the east, you cannot deny that Jesus has the power to do this. They know these things and believe these things, and instead of seeing Jesus' power and compassion, they want to use Jesus' mercy and compassion and power to trap him. Fifth, notice that Jesus gives them an answer. Jesus answers their question, but not in a way that they might expect. Jesus answers them from personal experience, reason, and principle. Personal experience, reason, and principle, right? Jesus, says, Jesus asked them a question. He says, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out of the pit? Now, even the Pharisees, let's give them some credit, even the Pharisees on man-made traditions had a caveat for la- livestock. There was a caveat in the law that allowed for a sheep or an oxen or other livestock to be rescued from peril on the Sabbath. So if you did see a sheep, if your sheep was in a pit, on the Sabbath you could lift it out and that's not work. That's saving the animal's life. Now, the issue at hand here, another caveat, the issue at hand here could be that this man with a withered hand is not in immediate danger. He's lived with it probably for years. His life is not in immediate danger. Couldn't Jesus just avoid the trap And uh, in a couple of hours, wait till sundown, which is the beginning of the next day, and heal him on Sunday? Couldn't Jesus just swing by his house tomorrow? Couldn't Jesus just have avoided this conflict altogether? No. No. Jesus wants the conflict. He's looking for it. Jesus presses the principle home by asking this question, this reasonable question. He says... How much more value is a man than a sheep? How much more value is a man than a sheep? Now, I could go here on a tangent about how our world wants to argue from an evolutionary principle that all life is biologically the same and we're all just stardust bumping into each other and how there is no inherent difference in value between a man or a sheep or a man or a dog. But let me tell you something. None of you will live by that principle. You refuse. If, if I had a dog playing, if my dog was playing in the street and my son Jake was playing in the street and I rescued my dog from a truck and let the do- let, uh, rescued the, the dog from a truck and let the truck hit my son, I would dare say that y'all would consider that criminal. You can't live by that kind of evolutionary principle. We know inherently in our souls that a value of a man is greater than the value of a sheep being made in the image of God. Now, That is not even the point of my sermon. But, here it is. This is the point. Jesus points out hypocrisy. It is hypocrisy. If you are willing to put a caveat in your man-made traditions to show mercy to an animal on the Sabbath, how can you not show mercy to a man made in the image of God on the Sabbath? So Jesus concludes, So, Therefore, in conclusion, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not instituted as a prohibition to doing good, to showing mercy, to having compassion. Sixth, notice that Jesus heals the man. 
He doesn't just talk about it in principle. He acts. Jesus heals the man. He intentionally antagonizes the Pharisees over their hypocrisy and heals this man in front of everyone. He says four words in the Greek. He doesn't say, be healed of thy shriveled hand, O man, thou should doest. He just says, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. How much work is that? It's just four words. They asked Jesus more words than that in their question. Is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? Stretch out your hand. It's just four words, right? Four words. Is, four, is speaking four words considered breaking the Sabbath? Is stretching out your hand considered breaking the Sabbath when all of you walked here? And I walked along with you from the grain fields? And lastly, notice the contrast in verses 13 and 14. There's a contrast here. Matthew tells us, and the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the others. That's glorious news. Worth rejoicing in. And then look at the next, the next line. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him to destroy him. Do you see the comparison? Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is full of compassion and power. He gives mercy, life, restoration, and wholeness. The Pharisees, by comparison, would rather destroy and hide behind a veil of religious devotion. This is indeed the blind leading the blind. But it's not Jesus' time yet. And so Jesus slips away from them and continues ministering. Now let me give you a couple principles here right out of this. If your religious devotion allows you to withhold compassion and mercy because of some less important issue, make it up, whatever you want to think about here, you are not living or loving like Jesus. If you can take some secondary issue and go, I'm going to use that as an issue not to obey the greatest command, which is to love God and love people, you're not living and loving like Jesus. Don't hide behind religious veils. You're using the worst form of religion there is, hypocrisy. Second, if, you are, if your religious devotion allows you to hold religious traditions above loving others, and showing compassion, you're not living or loving like Jesus. According to Jesus, it's always right to show mercy and compassion no matter what day it is. Now, I can't read of this text and not think about 1 John 4, where John says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John watched this happen. And then he writes that letter. Love for God and for people made in his image must trump any man-made inconveniences we try to hide behind. What we learn here is that Jesus is a powerful and merciful king. But he doesn't use his power to put others down. But to raise them up and restore them by his grace and mercy. Second, we learn this. That Jesus is the Lord of mercy who's come to serve. He's come to serve. If you look there at verses 17 through 20, it looks like Matthew takes a tangent. But he doesn't. Matthew, as he's putting together this gospel, and he shares these two episodes about Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath, in his mind, he cannot escape what Isaiah has prophesied about Jesus. Matthew, is quoted, Matthew quotes Isaiah. He's quoted him four times up to this point. 
And this is the longest quotation. So when Matthew thinks of Jesus, he thinks of Jesus through the lens of Isaiah's promise that God's anointed Messiah would come as God's servant. The Lord of mercy condescending to humbly serve His people. Look what it says there in that quotation from Isaiah in verses um, 18 through 21. Notice a few things. First, Jesus is, cho- is the chosen servant of the Father. He's, that's what he says, right? Behold my servant whom I have chosen. God had prophesied through Isaiah that he would send a Messiah. Now many thought that Messiah would come and destroy all of Israel's enemies and oppressors like Rome. But here we see God's Messiah is a servant. He's come to serve. And so is it any wonder when we think about Jesus and we think about him preaching in the Gospels that Jesus says things like this, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Or when Jesus would speak about those in his kingdom, Jesus would say, if anyone would be first, he must be last and be the if you want to be the greatest you must be the servant of all do you see this upside down kingdom that Jesus is talking about or in John 13 when Jesus washes the disciples feet he says you call me teacher and Lord for right for you are right he says if your Lord and teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done. No servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. To be like Jesus, you have to be a servant. Or that Paul in Philippians 2, one of my favorite texts, would say, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, doing what? Taking the form of a master, king, ruler, lord. What was the form he took? Servant. He came as a servant. And in all of this, the father gives his seal by declaring that this is his son, his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased. The son who has come to serve. I think it's interesting that right here Matthew quotes Isaiah And the two times we hear the Father speak in the gospel at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration, the Father says this very line from Isaiah. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The one who has come to serve. Not the one that has come to lord it over all others in the way that human kings tend to do. Second, notice that Jesus comes filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will bring mercy, grace, and justice to the nations. To the Gentiles, not simply the Jews. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Where God had promised Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's who Jesus is. He's come not in pomp or circumstance or with violent force. He has come. He will not, as he says here in the quotation, he will not quarrel or fight or cry aloud in the streets later on like a sheep is silent before his shearers. Jesus is led away to the slaughter. He will not trample underfoot those that are downtrodden or outcast. He says here, one of my favorite promises, a bruised reed he will not break. Have you seen a reed that grow up in the marshes? They're a very delicate thing. 
It does not take much to bend them or bruise them or break them. And Jesus comes gentle and lowly and promises not to break them, but to restore them. He will not snuff out a smoldering wick. Listen, all of us here, we know it doesn't take much, out, it doesn't take much effort to put out a candle, does it? It doesn't take much to snuff out a candle. Much less a candle that just has one little glimmer of a stream of smoke coming out of it. And what we see here is that Jesus will come and protect the spiritual spark that is there and keep it from being extinguished. And this is all because it goes to the heart of who Jesus is. He's the Lord of mercy who's come to serve. Now let me say this here. Compare Jesus. Let's go back to our initial thought. Compare Jesus here to those powerful and mighty kings and rulers we mentioned before. Would any of those rulers treat the weak and powerless this way? Would they enlist those that are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks into their army? Would they invite them and give them the places of honor in their kingdom and at their table? That's not how you conquer the world or trample other empires underfoot by having the weakest among your ranks. But that's precisely what Jesus does. Jesus loves the outcast, the downtrodden, the, forgot, the forgotten, the marginalized, the maimed, the disabled, the disregarded, those that you look down upon week to week and day by day. Can I tell you something? Throughout the 2,000 years of church history, the church has always been the strongest when it is ministering and serving the least of these in society. Loving and serving widows, orphans, the disabled, homeless, those battling addiction, the powerless and the voiceless. The church is not powerful when it tries to reach only those that are powerful and influential and wealthy and connected and socially beneficial. Can I remind you here that Jesus was ridiculed by all the religious elite because he dined with tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't hobnobbing it with the religious elite. He was eating with tax collectors and prostitutes, loving them and calling them to repentance, both. Don't try to make an excuse there. Not from a distance, but from the intimacy of friendship and a meal. Sitting down at the table and eating, sharing life and love and compassion. Jesus comes to serve. To serve. And finally, Jesus comes to save. That's who he is. Look, look there at the end. I want to ask a couple questions. Just think here through the text with me again. Why does Jesus provoke the Pharisees? He could have avoided it. Why does he confront them and seemingly fall into their trap? He knows that if he does this, they're going to destroy him. Though not at this moment. It will come later. Why does he put himself in their crosshairs so that they want to destroy him? Why is he so focused from this point going forward on the cross? And the answer is that Jesus' greatest act as a powerful king, as a great king, as the, his greatest act as God's chosen servant will be that he will go to the cross and give his life for ours. 
He will, out of obedience to the Father, lay down His life in our place to save us from our sins. He's come to serve. Come to save. Now I quoted a portion of Philippians 2 earlier about Christ coming in the form and likeness of a servant. Here are the rest of what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. And listen to this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now connect that to the last line of verse 21. Matthew 12, 21. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. In his name. In his name. The name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, the name at which every knee will bow, the Gentiles will find hope and salvation. The name of this king, the name of this servant, the name of this chosen Messiah is Jesus. He's come as the light of the world, bringing the gospel of peace and hope, not to the Jews, but to the nations. This is why Peter will stand up on Pentecost and say, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. And let me say that all of this here in Matthew 12 goes to the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God's grace and mercy to the undeserving. It shows the very heart and nature of God in Christ. The Lord of mercy has come to serve And to save those who do not deserve mercy, but only God's wrath. But I know even in this room, many of you struggle to believe that. You say, you think things like this. You think, you know, God isn't merciful. God isn't gracious. He's capricious. He's looking to throw me down. God cannot save me. God is not willing to save me. I hear I want to end with a quick story. You'll have to humor me. If you've never seen this little video, me and Lee Butler talked about this several times. Um, There's a little video of Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers. He's speaking, and he's telling the story of the thief on the cross. And he says, you know, he's telling the story about the thief on the cross. And he's there, just picture him there. Jesus is on the cross, the the very reason he's come. He's on the cross, and this man has spent hours ridiculing and blaspheming Jesus. Ridiculing him and blaspheming. But something happens while he's there. And in a moment of insight, spiritual awakening, he all of a sudden sees Jesus differently. And you remember, what's hanging right above Jesus' head? There's a plaque. You know what that plaque says? Here is... Jesus, who is he? He's the king, the king of the Jews. A king, they think mocking him, ridiculing him. Look at this great and glorious king hanging on a cross. That's not a sign of power, right? They said, even they're mocking him, going, if you come down in power, we'll believe on you. Jesus stays. But Jesus, in a moment of clarity, this this thief on the cross looks at Jesus and he goes, have mercy on me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus makes a promise. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, fast forward, and this is where Alistair Begg tells a funny story. But fast forward, just the man dies and he goes to the pearly gates right there, right? And an angel comes to meet him at the gate and says, who are you? I'm, I was just crucified right outside of Jerusalem. What are you doing here? I have no idea. Why are you here? Think about it. You think that man can explain justification by faith? You think that man can explain to you who exactly Jesus is? Has that man been baptized? Has that man done any good works? Has that man got anything to show? So when the angel asks him, why are you here? He's like, that man down there told me I could come. That's all I got. That has to be the bottom of everything, people. If you answer that question, well, I did this, I believed in Jesus, I went to church, I baptized, if you answer that in the first person, you were wrong. The only way to answer that question, why do I belong here? Because that man. Because Jesus said I could be here. Because that's who Jesus is, the Lord of mercy, who's come to serve you and save you because you can't do it yourself. Maybe you're like that man... Maybe you're like the the man with the shriveled hand this morning. You're here and you're just doing your normal thing. You didn't even come here to plead for mercy. But Jesus is speaking to you right now. Or maybe you're like that man on the cross and you're like, I have spent my life ridiculing Jesus and running from Jesus. But all of a sudden, he doesn't look weak and powerless. He looks glorious and good. Because that's what we see when we see the cross. I don't see weakness. I see the glory and greatness of our King who has come in mercy to save us. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray you'd bless your word as we think hard about Jesus, our Savior. And Father, I pray that all of us would get to the bottom of our salvation and we would recognize that everything that we need and could ever hope for, Jesus has provided. Father, so that all of pride would die in us. There is nothing I can cling to, nothing good in my flesh, At the end of all things, we will have to say we are here by the sheer grace and mercy of Jesus. Speak to us now. We pray this in Jesus' name.